We started last week with a series called Crossing the Line. We placed the cross at the front. We, we ran a red line right down the center of our worship center. Next weekend, that line is going to go through the commons to the front doors. And as I've been talking and thinking all week long about crossing the line, it's made me do a bit of a, a kind of a historical walk back through my life to, to see the good moments when I crossed the line in positive ways and, and bad moments when I cross lines that I know that I shouldn't have crossed. I started thinking back to, to when I was in eighth grade. My friend Brent Guerra wanted to get high one night, so he sprayed cooking spray into a sock to huff it to try and get high. And, and Brent died doing that. He crossed a line. There was no going back. When I was a junior in high school, I had a friend named Shannon who, who went to a party one night and had an asthma attack. The problem was that everybody at that party that night was so drunk they couldn't even see that Shannon couldn't breathe. And Shannon died that night. And that night a whole bunch of people crossed the line and there was no going back. All throughout high school, I used to drive down back alleys and enter my church through a rigged back door because I was too embarrassed to go in the front doors because all my friends hung out at a 7-Eleven parking lot across the street. I didn't want to be known as one of those religious freaks, one of those Christians, so I hid. I crossed the line and I thought there was no going back. 1983, God called me to leave my hypocrisy behind and to fully follow him with everything that I had. And in making that decision, I crossed the line and there's been no going back. 1985, I walked into Briarcrest Bible College to learn the word of God. When I arrived at school, I crossed the line. There's no going back. Last week, I talked about how when you get married, you cross the line and there should be no going back. Those of you that are married understand that. On two occasions, nurses in hospitals without checking my background or my competency, handed me bundles of humanity that they said were mine and made an assumption that I would know how to parent them. As they gave me that child, I crossed a line and there was no going back. September the 1st, 1999, I walked into this church for the very first time for my first day of work. can't believe it's almost been 10 years. I crossed a line. There's no going back. If I handed everybody in this room a microphone, you could go through some lines just like that. Some of the lines would make you smile. Some of the lines would make you stare at the floor because they bring shame into your life. Every one of us has them. In some ways, the lines that we've crossed are defining who you are today. My prayer through this series is that you'll cross the ultimate line of faith. Because when you come to Jesus and cross the line, he has a way of redeeming those shame lines that you crossed when you knew you shouldn't have. As we get started today, can you imagine a world without lines? I mean, it sounds like a cool idea at first thought, right? No more waiting in line at the gas station, no more waiting in line at the grocery store. But let's press in a little bit deeper and let's really think about what life would be like if, if there were no lines. I mean, and can you imagine playing competitive football without a goal line? I mean, you'd catch a passion pass in Washington and you'd just keep going until you hit California, right? Because you wouldn't know where to stop. Can you imagine doing a track event with no lines? I mean, your coach would just say, just run until you can't, right? Last one alive wins if you didn't have a finish line. Can you imagine driving the guide with no lines? Now, some of you are going, there's lines on the guide? Yeah. I follow you home every week, I'm just a little bitter, all right? I mean, a world without lines would be chaos. 
And this series has been all about crossing lines. My prayer is that you will cross lines of faith and grace, that you'll stop crossing lines of sin, because we're going to find out that Jesus crossed the lines of pain and suffering so that we could cross the lines of relationship and salvation with him. Many years ago on his way to the cross, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was welcomed by crowds of people that thought he was a king, that he was going to deliver them from the Romans. In that moment, they crossed the line of worship. They they went out and actually named him as a king. They said, Hosanna, save us now. Well, they crossed the line of worship one week later. The exact same group of people were going to cross the line of hypocrisy when they exchanged the word Hosanna for two other words, crucify him. Those people crossed the line. There was no going back. I've learned in a lot of years of studying the Bible, that if you really want to understand a certain account, you need to look at the bookends. Look at what happens right before. Look at what happens right after. And we're going to do that today. And the reason we're going to do that is very clear to me. We're going to study what happened right before and right after Palm Sunday. So we're not guilty of the exact same kind of hypocrisy that the people who named Jesus as King did on the very first Palm Sunday. So let's walk through this together. As you're following along in your outline, on his journey to the cross, Jesus chose to cross a line. And the first line is the line of desperation. I'm going to use a lot of scripture this morning, and there was so much we couldn't get it all on the screens. So if you'll look in your outline, or better yet, if you've got your Bible, you want to follow along, I'm just going to read these to you. Scripture says that before the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, that Jesus was very busy. And Matthew 20 tells us what he was doing. Scripture says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho... A large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. I love Bible stories about blind people being able to see. These stories are personal for me. My wife has Bietti's crystalline dystrophy. Our prayer for the last 15 years every day is that one day Laura will be able to see the faces of her children with crystal clarity. Right now, it's blocked and muddled and twisted and distorted and blurry. I love stories where God touches blind people and says, you can see, it gives me hope to keep praying for the miracle. You know, these guys show up in the midst of it. I mean, Jesus is on a mission. He's going to die on a cross, and yet he interrupts his plan to touch the hearts of some very desperate people. I mean, these two guys, are are, they hear Jesus is coming and they scream at the top of their lungs, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the church police show up. You guys drive me crazy, right? The church police are just like, cut it out. Zip it. We're quiet. We're reserved. We're very calm in the presence of God. And you guys need to just tone it down a little. I love their response. They shout louder. 
The church police can't stop me. I can't see. And I heard there's a guy walking by that can actually see. So they, or that can actually help me. So they start yelling even louder. And Jesus is moved by the cry of their heart. Ask the question, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? I love what they don't say. They don't say, I want a BMW with alloy rims and a Bose stereo package. I mean, that's what I want, right? No. We want to see Jesus. We can't see you. I think there's a clue for all of us here. I talk with people on a regular basis who say, I can't figure out why in the world God keeps saying no. Here's question number one. Are you asking for a want or a need? I just want that. I want that. I want five easy steps to make my life easier. I want a new truck. I want a house. I want my life to be simple. I want a complete avoidance of suffering in my life. That's what I want. Really? What do you need? What do you need? I wish I had a nice tidy answer for those of you who are here today who've been asking God for a genuine need for years. I don't have a nice tidy theological answer, but I do know how you feel. I have no idea why God is asking you to wait. I've been waiting for almost 16 years. But I know this. I would rather wait with God than without him. Rather with God than without him. Crosses the line of desperation. Secondly, he crosses the line of peace. The Bible goes on and says this, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him the Lord needs them. We will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what, the, what had been spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why is that so important? It's important because the people that day were expecting a conquering king. They expected a warrior to come riding into town. And here's why the choice of Jesus' transportation is so important. If you were coming as a conquering king and riding into a city to let everybody know that you were going to declare victory or war, you ride into the city gates on a horse, a big horse. But if you rode into town as a regent on a donkey, it simply meant you were coming in peace. I think people were a little disappointed when they saw that Jesus came on a donkey because they wanted him to take the Romans out. And instead, in pure Jesus' form, with complete humility, he rides into town and says, I want you to understand, I've come here to reconcile with peace you and God the Father. That's why I'm here. Thirdly is the line of acclaim. Now you're going to notice as I read this that we've, booked to the, or we've jumped to the book of John. We're going to do, actually, the triumphant entry is one of the few stories in Scripture that's in most of the Gospels, if not all of the Gospels. And what you do is you take the story, and each one of the stories gives you different little pieces of the detail. So we're going to jump to John chapter 12, and here's Jesus crossing the line of acclaim. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They start a parade. 
They hear Jesus is coming, so they start rallying people together. I got a question that I need to ask as a Canadian who's only been an American for the last four years. What is up with you people in parades? Seriously. I grew up in Manitoba. I never, we didn't have parades. There were, we just didn't have them. I come to here, down here, Whatcom County. I moved to Linden. It's like every other weekend you're having a parade, right? Lighted Christmas parade, Holland parade, Farmer's Day parade. And I don't understand why. Why should I go and sit on a hard curb for two plus hours and watch people that I already know drive past me very slowly? It's like, wow, here comes Rick in his 2002 Honda. Woohoo! Followed by his kid on a bike. I don't. They started a parade, right? And people just joined in with the parade. They, they hear Jesus has been doing miracles. I mean, if you start raising people from the dead, you get a lot of attention. That's the way it works, right? Lazarus has been raised from the dead and they start showing up. They turn the thing into a parade and they start shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. Now that's not a bad thing to say. And I'm not, a, I'm not a great scholar of the original languages, so I have to depend on other commentators, but I kept finding this theme that was running it. And basically this is the way they were saying it. Save us now. Do you hear the little bit of demand in there? Jesus, we want you to save us, but we want you to do it now on my terms because it works for me because I think it's a good idea. So get with the program, God, because I need a little help. Just so we're perfectly clear, God won't save you on your terms. God will only save you on his terms. And one of his terms is that you completely and fully surrender your soul. The good, the bad, and the ugly of who you are. When I accepted Jesus, I asked him to change my heart and he became my savior. I also asked him to become my Lord, which meant I wanted him to have no holds barred access into the darkest parts of my soul. That's a tough line to step over, isn't it? People call this moment a temporary triumph. Others have called it the apex of human hypocrisy. And Jesus is going to step over another line. It is the line of hypocrisy. Now, I want us to know this. We don't find the line of hypocrisy in this moment. Actually, we find it one week later when the same group of people exchanged save us now for crucify him. Scripture says this in Matthew 27. Pilate, who has holding a trial for Jesus, asks a question. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked, and they all answered him. All of them. Crucify him. Christ the King, I got a I got a heartbreaking question to ask. Are we guilty of the same thing? Do we worship God on Sunday with our words and with our prayers and then spend the rest of the week crucifying him with our choices and with our actions? 
That's the hard question of Palm Sunday. I mean, we drew a line right down the middle of the worship center and I'm doing something uncomfortable right now. I'm actually straddling it. I'm trying to keep a foot on both sides of the line. I'm trying to play both ends against the middle. I'm trying to stay here right nice and safe on the fence so I've got the eternal security of the cross. But truthfully, I just want to be able to go and do my own thing because after all, it's my life, right? So many of us, we try to play both sides. We're wasted on Friday, worshiping on Sunday like it's no big deal. Well, just so we're absolutely clear about how Jesus draws lines, I want you to understand something today. If you are here, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you are strategically trying to live out your life by staying right on the fence, there's something you need to know. By being on the fence, you've made your choice because the fence belongs to the devil. Straight up. couple more lines to cross. Right after this happens. I mean, the parade hasn't even petered out yet. And Jesus crosses the line of religion. The church police show up again. The Bible says in Luke 19, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The same guys who tried to shut up the two blind guys who were shouting at the top of their lungs, creating a little bit of a scene, they show up on this Hosanna parade and they say, can you just get your people to tone it down a notch? This is not cool, Jesus. You need to tell them to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? He goes, I could do that. I could ask them to be quiet. But if I do, everything that I've created in the world is going to scream. The rocks are going to howl. The mountains are going to scream. The sun. Did anybody see that bright thing in the sky this morning on your way in? I'm not sure what that thing is, but it's warm. Okay, so anyway. But Jesus, I mean, he could have pointed to the sun and said, if I tell these guys to be quiet, that sun is going to start making a whole lot of noise. And I think that's a clue to all of us. Next weekend, when we come together on Easter weekend, to celebrate that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is alive and still transforming life, we're going to have an opportunity to make some noise. And Christ the King, here's what I need you to know. If you don't lift your voice, if you don't worship God because he's alive, the seat that you're sitting in is going to start yelling at you from underneath. If you don't start making noise in praise of God, the parking lot is going to start screaming at people as they're leaving. And that's going to freak some people out. If you don't do what you were created to do, which is to worship God in spirit and in truth, I'm going to be sitting here and my music stand is going to yell at the top of its lungs, praise God. Let's not let that happen. Now, some of you are here and you're just like, let's be really quiet and see if it does, right? (laughs) Let's not. Let's do what we were created to for. Let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's make so much noise that people that are going for lettuce at cost cutter wonder what in the world is going on with those people. They might just show up here and get saved, lettuce and all. (laughs) It's just a thought. It's going to cross another line. It's the line of heartbreak. 
Luke chapter 19, Scripture says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I love that verse because it means one thing to me. The same Jesus who cried over Jerusalem cries over Bellingham and Ferndale and Everson and Fairhaven. I have two locations in Whatcom County that I love to go and pray. One of them gives me a vantage point to see the entire city of Ferndale. I don't live in Ferndale. I have nothing to gain or lose by doing anything in Ferndale. But I believe in the depth of my soul that God has called Christ the King Bellingham to put a campus in Ferndale. I thought it was supposed to be this Easter. Apparently not. God had other plans. So now we're targeting the September kickoff in Ferndale. You know what I know about Ferndale? The people in Ferndale that don't know Jesus break God's heart. And somebody has got to care about them. I have another place that I go when, I, when it's a clear day, which means I don't get there very often. But it's a cut line on the side of the mountains over here, and I can literally look over the entire county. I go up there and bawl my eyes out because you know what I see? I see 193,000 people that don't know Jesus. And you know what the answer is? Us. It should scare you. It scares me too. We're the answer to telling them about Jesus. When was the last time you cried over the fact that most of your neighbors don't know him? Jesus did. And he crossed the line. Here's the final line. Probably the most heartbreaking, it's the line of surrender because you see after the parade is done and the moment's passed, the disciples are sleeping. Jesus comes to them, he asks a question standing in the garden. You can't give me an hour? You can't stay with me for one hour while I'm preparing to deal with you and your sin? The Bible says, that Jesus prays in that moment. He says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. He surrenders. Then the group shows up to take Jesus away and he says, look, the hour is near. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Can I paraphrase that for you? Jesus says, let's get on with it. I'm gonna save them. Whether they accept it or not, I'm going to go and do my part. And in that moment, he crosses the line of surrender. Christ the King, as we enter into this holy week, have you fully crossed the line of surrender? Have you laid it all down? Have you already given God your schedule for next week, every moment of every day for next week? Have you fully surrendered everything, knowing that Jesus fully surrendered everything to save you. Last week we talked how Jesus drew a line. Here's his line, again, just so we don't forget in Luke 9. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, save it. 
What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? This week, God once again has convicted me of just how selfish I tend to be with my schedule. I like my schedule to be about me. I like it to be convenient. I like to do my own thing. And when I read those words right before Jesus prayed the prayer in the garden, can't you just give me one hour? I started thinking about how I'm going to do my week this week. Christ the King, all I can do for you is provide opportunities for you to walk along with Jesus through Holy Week. I don't know why you wouldn't want to knowing that he walked every step for you. We do shadows of the cross, an interactive time when you come and you take about an hour and you walk through a set of stations that have been made up. You do things symbolically. You pray. You allow God just to speak deeply into your soul. As you look at this coming week, Jesus has a question. Can't you give me an hour? We're going to be here on Good Friday. And I know you've got a decision to make. Dinner and movie. Or the Lord's Supper. You pick. It's not a shame thing or a guilt thing. It's a simple choice. My encouragement to you is to cross the right line. We're going to come. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to read scripture. We're going to take communion. And we're going to go home. Can't you give me just one hour? That's not my question. That's God's. I want you to know something about Easter weekend. You can't have resurrection Sunday if you don't go through Good Friday first. You've got to walk through the pain before you can get to the glory. We come on Good Friday and it's somber. It's not easy. It's not fun. We're talking about a man dying. It's not light. It's not cheerful. But when we walk out, we have a hope and assurance that just as Jesus stepped over the line of death, three days later, he stepped over the line of life. If you were here last Good Friday, I told you about a story. I came early, went to a Barnes and Noble to get a coffee to try and brace myself for what we were going to do. And as I was standing at the street corner, a guy on a bicycle came zipping down the hill and I heard him yelling at me. Pastor Grant, don't forget, in the end, we win. Good Friday hurts, but you know what makes it good? We win. That's what makes it rich and good and perfect. Don't miss out on Good Friday because it takes the edge off of what happens on Easter weekend. Cross the line. Cross the line, Christ the King. It runs right through the cross. It's not about what we've done for him. It's about what he's done for us. Amen. What he's done for us. When he crossed the line. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? God, I thank you for every person here that they were so precious to you that you were willing to step across the line and give your life. 
so that they could have the opportunity to cross the line of faith and salvation. God, thank you for stepping across the line of pain, suffering, and surrender. God, as we walk through this week, may we be ever mindful of the sacrifice that you made for us. God, I pray that we would be humbled, that we would stop in our tracks, that we would give you our full attention this holy week. God, as we assemble to remember you on Friday and then to celebrate the fact that you're not dead on Easter weekend, would you be glorified as we choose to cross the line? So God, thank you that you stepped over the line first. May we not try to straddle the line of hypocrisy. May we worship continuously in everything we say, do, and live out this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.